We are transitioning gradually out of our teaching series from the book of 2 Timothy, which we've been in for the last several months. The next three weeks, we will be sort of, will sort of be an Ellerslie appendix to this Together for Tomorrow series that we did through the book of uh, Timothy, uh, highlighting some of the team that God is putting together for our tomorrow and, and seeing how tomorrow is actually already breaking in on today, which I guess it always does, doesn't it? So th- this morning we uh, introduced to you Colton, who uh, hopefully will be part of our team going forward. And um, next Sunday, uh, part of, in one sense, the uh, Next Generation team, because one of the questions that we always have as a church that believes in, glo- in the global mission of the church is, who's going to take the place of some of those uh, retiring people? Brian and Jessica Miro from Among Us have, uh, have done that and have given themselves to that already for a while. And they're going to be with us next week, have the, the, the entire teaching time will be theirs next week, and uh, we'll be introduced to one of our actually current but sort of next generation global mission partners. And then the following Sunday, June 24, the day of our picnic, uh, we'll have this, a wrap-up beginning, that'll be beginning of our summer first services, ten, or only one service, 10 o'clock, just an intergenerational family service, and our, our teaching and personal life story piece uh, that day will highlight some of our own uh, leaders of tomorrow who are already on our team today. Uh, Paige Knickel will be sharing, uh, Gabe Piska, uh, who's our, our children's ministry intern for the summer, will be sharing, and uh, David Holzman, who is uh, working with uh, Pastor Dave in our uh, adult ministries, is going to be the cleanup hitter that day. So today, our, our teaching will point us toward a number of ways, one in particular in which we can all demonstrate our commitment to be part of the team uh, to make God's tomorrow happen for us. Now last week, we walked through the last paragraph of Paul's last letter, uh, a letter to Timothy, and, and we saw that the end of the paragraph, there was this fourfold request from Paul, who's languishing in a Roman prison. Well, languishing, that's what we'd expect, but he is actually flourishing. Um, he, he is per, still pursuing God's tomorrow for him. It's urgent now because he knows he's up for execution. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to leave Ephesus where you are working so effectively, doing what God's calling you to do and what I appointed you to do. You need to leave that right now, pack up, take the three or four month trek from Ephesus to Rome and join me because we have one more thing we absolutely need to do together. And by the way, on your way, pick up Mark and bring him with you. He's got to be part of this. And bring the books and the parchments. This is not reading to keep his mind distracted in fantasy land while he's sitting in a prison. These are documents to keep his mind and his team focused on what he can still do, even in prison where he can't be part of the frontline action, to, to complete the mission God gave him to help all those outside the core community of faith come to know Jesus and what he did impacts us. These are the foundational documents around which Luke, Mark, Timothy, and Paul are going to theologize and strategize. And as we saw last week, there's probably enough evidence to believe that this team was this team meeting that Paul is calling was instrumental in providing us with the most powerful tool in the shaping of the most powerful force in the world, the New Testament part of the Word of God. Oh yeah, Timothy, and on your way through Troas, please pick the cloak. I left in Troas, or with Carpus, the cloak, a warm overcoat. I really need that, Timothy, because winter's coming. 
We're doing a lot of our work in a cold, wet prison cell. And what this acknowledges is that in this letter that is about some very spiritual work and a spiritual job, to be really effective in this work that they're doing, they, they need some physical necessities that facilitate that work. In Paul, Paul's case, it's just basically in order to think well, you've got to be warm, right? And that's exactly where we are in our Project 18 Together for Tomorrow journey. It's what Project 18 is all about, putting an investment in our facility, which is our physical assistant for ministry so that we can more effectively fulfill our vision of inviting everybody we can from, from the four corners of the blocks in which we live to the four corners of the globe to become followers of Jesus. To upgrade our facility, we need a little bit of cash. Coming out of today, we're going to ask you to do some concerted thinking and praying about how you might be able to, to be part of, of this Together Tomorrow for Tomorrow charge in this way. But, before we talk about money, and most of our time we'll not be talking about money, we're going to be talking about one God encounter in the Bible, a story that introduces us to a, a breakthrough question, a fundamental question, a foundational perspective, a question we need to ask as we process how we can do our part in helping Project 18 pull off. You see, quite often, it's a question, the right question that opens the door of our thinking to help us do something that we didn't think we could do. How many times has your thinking become clear and directed well down the right road by thinking through the right question? A historical example of that, which is now water under the bridge, and some of us may never even have seen one of these, but it was the question that a photographer's daughter Asked as she saw her dad spending hours setting up and taking pictures, and this particular day she was in these pictures. The question was, Daddy, why can't we see those pictures right away? It was a why not kind of question. And that question led to the invention of the Polaroid camera. That simple niggling question opened up a whole new door and made somebody a whole lot of money on the way. As I entered a period of my life a couple of years ago in which there was some, it was a difficult personal transitional time, it was a question that became foundational for me to navigate that period successfully. Not perfectly, but better than I would have otherwise. I, I knew that if I was going to navigate this journey well, I needed to think well about everything that was happening to me. And one, one morning as I was reflecting on God's word, uh, the question came to me, and I committed myself to formally asking myself and reflecting on one question every single morning as I looked forward to that day and every evening as I looked back on that day and as much as possible in every minute through the day. And the question was simply this, what, what's the gift in this? What is the gift from God in this today? Regardless of what happens to me or doesn't happen to me today, what's the gift God is giving me in it or through it today? And that question kept me future-focused and helped me see the world through more optimistic eyes with a more joyful spirit and a more thankful heart. One simple question. Well, it had a second part to it, but we'll see later. Did you know that it was one simple question, a question that God asked one disillusioned, disheartened, disappointed, empty man 
that majorly changed the direction of world history, of God's program in this world, that transformed this defeated, enslaved nation of Israel into a force that totally and changed the course of world history and became part of setting up for God's program in Jesus big time. One little question. We looked at this question before, about three years ago, but we're going to review the story again today. It's the question God asked Moses when he asked him to step up and to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt to the land of promise, which was the greatest together for tomorrow journey in all of history. And it's one of the life-changing questions that needs to drive our thinking always about everything. One simple question, a breakthrough question, that's related to one very basic, simple symbol. Well, this might be a 21st century version of that symbol. Let's turn to God's story, God's version of our story, way back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. If you have a Bible app, open it up, Exodus chapter 3. You're going to read it. We're going to read some of it. You can follow along with the rest of it as I read. Moses is now 80 years old. His first 40 years were spent as royalty living a life of privilege as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter when the rest of God's people were Pharaoh's slaves. And then as he gets reacquainted with his roots, trying to follow what he thinks is God's call, he sees one of his fellow countrymen getting beaten and he takes matters into his own hands. And it doesn't go well. He loses it, knocks off the offending Egyptian, and surprisingly to him, his own people turn against him. Like, what are you trying to do? Make a scene. It'll just make it worse for us. And Moses flees Egypt to get on with his life. And it takes the next 40 years for God to get Moses out of Moses. For most of these last 40 years, Moses has been a shepherd manager working for his father-in-law. So at 40 years, or at 80 years old, he's with the flock of sheep in the hot, dry sun in an undisclosed location in the Middle Eastern wilderness with plenty of time to think. Let's, let's join Moses in that wilderness. He's sitting on a rock, and in his hands is the one symbol of his life that's been a constant, his shepherd's staff. As he turns it over in his hands, he begins to reflect on what that staff means to him. What's he thinking? What do you think he's feeling? Regret, perhaps? Maybe a little bit of jealousy in that mix? Because that staff is a symbol of his failure. Moses was not raised to have a shepherd's staff in his hand. It was a royal scepter he should have been holding. But for some reason, at some point, some streak of idealism made him feel called by God to identify with and rescue his fellow countrymen. And what a disaster that turned out to be. It's amazing as he thinks about it. It's amazing how quickly the anger seems to surface still after 40 years. 
He wills himself out of his funk and convinces himself that this staff also represents something else. This staff is a symbol of his wealth that he has made, that he has worked too hard to accumulate, that he has negotiated so shrewdly with his father-in-law to keep. And most of the time, this staff is what makes him able to proudly, defiantly hold his head high because he chooses to view this staff as a symbol of his own determination, his success at making the best of a bad situation. But in his own unguarded moments, he still wonders, what could have happened had he stayed in the Egyptian court and not become engaged in this God thing? And then the feelings of guilt come flooding in again. What would have happened if he'd stayed there and waited for God? Could something good have happened to his people? Oh well, enough of this pity party. Time to get on with the day. He's 80 years old now. Life is pretty much done. All in all, it's been a good life, but the die has been cast. Can't change the past. From now on, it's just keep on breathing till the ticker stops ticking. But as he gets up and forces him back to the present, to real life, something is registering in his brain. That bush over there is burning. Well, it's not a usual for a bush to be burning. Shrubs burn in the hot sun of the desert occasionally, but as he rewinds the tape in his head and he keeps on looking at it for a while, he realizes that it's, it's burning, but it's not burning up. He shakes his head to make sure he's not dreaming, and, and, and then he wanders over to check it out. Now, okay, that's all, all of that is a bit speculative, but it is realistic Let's pick it up as the Bible records it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Mountain, Moses saw that through the bush was, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought... I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called from within the bush, Moses, Moses! And Moses said, I'm here. And in his mind, God said, we're going to find out whether he's here. But to Moses, he said, Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He was what? He was afraid. Now, that's probably putting it mildly. He thought he had finally escaped the memory of that voice that had haunted him for 40 years. What does God do? 
He simply reminds Moses of who he is. God reveals himself to Moses. He doesn't bring up his failure. He doesn't give him his job. He gives him himself. And he tugs at Moses' heart by reminding him of his heart, his passion for his people. And again, God graciously calls, graciously calls Moses to step up, this time under God's direction, and do the very thing at which he had failed big time. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So, now, go. I, I, Moses, am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And at the name of Pharaoh, a different kind of fear takes over. Back to Pharaoh? Are you kidding me? Moses has decided he will never put himself in that place again. Sound familiar? I was embarrassed once. I was disappointed once. I was turned down once. You will never catch me going there again. Not a chance. Never mind that he did it his own way and went ahead of God. Funny how we forget those little details. We remember what we want to remember. How does Moses express his fear to God? He doesn't admit it and say, Lord, that makes me afraid. What he does is he throws a question in God's face. What we would call a holdback question. Isn't that what we do? We use questions to, to buy time, to give excuses, to hold back. What was the first one? Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God doesn't bring back Bring up Moses' failures, but Moses does. Remember me, Lord? I'm not the guy. You got a pretty short memory. And what does God do? He answers with a promise. Verse 12, I will be with you. Moses, who you are is irrelevant. It's who I am. It's not about you. Let's, will you start with me this time, Moses? As you read the rest of chapter 3, you see that God patiently reveals to Moses more of who he is and how he will be with him. And, and Moses, I will make you a promise that the people will listen to you, the elders will listen to you. And then very realistically, he tells Moses, Moses, Pharaoh's another story. He's a piece of work. He's not going to be a pushover. But he says to Moses, Moses, will you let me care, take care of Pharaoh this time? But although Moses is probably a bit touched, he doesn't budge. And as we enter chapter 4, there's another holdback question. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. It's all nice and fine for you to say you'll be with me, but, but what help is that if the people don't acknowledge that you are with me? Holdback questions. 
and reasons. We have a quiver full of them, don't we? Anytime God asks us to step forward, there are holdback questions. Some of them are, are legitimate. They need to be answered. But some of them, probably more than we care to admit, are barriers we, we throw up to not have to do some deep thinking. We have them ready. We pull them out of our quiver and we shoot them back at God. Some of them are why questions. They're, they're preemptive kind of holdback questions. We throw them up even before, just when we think we're going to be asked something. Some of them are sort of detour questions. We, we detour from the, the real issue and talk about some side thing. You got any holdback questions that are keeping you from engaging God fully or, or allowing God, get God to engage you fully? Maybe even entering a relationship with God. It's one of the reasons we, uh, we run the Alpha course and we're starting it again in the fall. It, it's a great place to just put on the table some of your questions and see if God won't answer them for you. I dare you. Now, God takes a different tack. In order to get Moses out of that question rut in his mind, God turns to the tables and he asks Moses one simple breakthrough question. A question that becomes the turning point in all of history. Moses, hey, what's that you got in your hand? You ever been holding a child or trying to talk to a child when they're just screaming away like crazy and you try to distract them from their screaming with just a question? <laughs> That's sort of what God's doing with those. Hey, Moses, what's in your hand? For Moses, it's like, what kind of question is that? Do you really want to go there? Is this your idea of a joke, rubbing my nose in it? You know very well what's in my hand. It's a staff. It's a shepherd's staff. We don't know how long God waits to allow the explosion of thoughts and emotions to dissipate in Moses' heart and his mind, but with this tone of quiet, patient authority that makes Moses realize he has no option, God says, throw it down. Throw it onto the ground. Moses, let go of what's in your hand. The thing that you've been hanging on to that represents everything about who you are that is sometimes your blanket of security, sometimes a symbol of failure, and at times you're convincing yourself it's what's making, making you successful. Throw it down. Let it go to me. We don't know how much time lapsed, but I see Moses looking at that staff, looking at that bush, back at that staff, this pregnant pause. And finally, it's, okay, there you go. Probably wasn't the first time that Moses had thrown that staff down because we know it's not going to be the last time. And then there's this hilarious thing that happens when he throws it down. Verse 3, Moses threw it on the ground. And it became a snake and he ran from it. Don't you think that's funny? Think about it. An 80-year-old wilderness man throws it down. <laughs> this wasn't some little snake. This is a snake the size of his staff. Don't you think God has a sense of humor? A couple of years ago, we were in, uh, 
in a, at a cabin in Vernon, hot, dry area, in a park which is sort of a protective park for rattlesnakes. We'd never seen a rattlesnake there, but uh, once maybe. LaDonna and I are walking along in the dusk, and we're walking along this really narrow little driveway, and as we're walking along, all of a sudden, right, right beside us. Took a little while for it to register for me. <laughs> it didn't register for me until I saw LaDonna. <laughs> Just running up the road, and, and she said, Oh, get out of there! That's Moses. And then God gets serious. Moses, go, go pick that thing up by the tail. Like, what? I'm not going close to that thing. But for some reason, maybe he's afraid that if he doesn't obey, God's going to send a snake after him. For some reason, Moses becomes more afraid of disobeying God than about what this snake is going to do to him. And he goes and picks it up by the tail. And it becomes a staff again. Now we're getting somewhere, Moses. And God says, okay, stick your hand inside your jacket. He does, pulls it out, and it's all blotchy and distorted with leprosy. Stick it back. He does, pulls it out. It's his hand again. And God says, when the people disbelieve, they will, they'll they'll disbelieve. When they disbelieve, this is what you are to do in front of them. Not as a magic trick to show how cool you are, but to show the people that this is not about you. And it's not about them. It's about a powerful God who can control all things and is ready to control all things to get you out of here. Do you see what God is doing? This staff that has become for symbol both a security blanket and a stumbling block and a symbol of success, it's become the symbol of who he is. God is saying to Moses, as you let go of those things that define you, the symbols of who you are, as you let go into my hands all of those things, they will become something way more powerful than a royal scepter could ever have been. Oh, the struggle's not over, totally. Moses still tries to convince God he's not the man, and so God says, fine, you go, and I'll use your brother Aaron to speak for you. But as we move to the next scene, the end of chapter 3, Moses is negotiating with his father-in-law to take an extended leave, and then he packs his family, a few provisions to go back to Egypt. And it sort of is, there's this wrap-up little summary line. says, so Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And then there's this little throwaway line that's perhaps added later by an editor, or maybe Moses adds it as he finishes his book, thinking about it. And in his hands, he carried the staff of God. The what? The staff of God. In his mind, it is no longer his staff. He has thrown it down given it to God, and God says, pick it back up again, it is now mine. 
It is now a symbol of something totally different. Do you know what's so cool? If you look through the journey of, of Moses and God's people through the Exodus, there are several very key experiences in this journey at which it's Moses and his staff. Moses with what was in his hand that God is using to move his story forward. So let's move from Moses to me. This question, what's in your hand? It's actually a key question that we need to process when we think through one of the very, very key roles, relationship roles, that God calls all of us to, every single one of us. It's a role that we were created for at creation. It's a role that we gave up, and it's a role that God is calling us back to. Well, you see, when we think of the kind of relationship that, that God wants to have with us, there's, there's a number of different metaphors we use to describe that. Uh, the one that probably is the most common is we think of ourselves as children of God. And, but really, when we explore that in the Bible, it's not just sort of cute, cuddly little children. We're, we're considered adult sons, which means heirs together with Jesus of everything that God has. We, we're, we're called brothers and sisters with Jesus. Amazing when you... When you think that through, and, and Jesus even said, you know, you're no longer just slaves, you're friends. Friends. And, and then we also occasionally ponder the fact that, that we, are, we are citizens of his kingdom. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that's going downhill, to that, that uphill kingdom that's going to end up in the glory of, of, of God forever. We're, we're citizens of that kingdom, and, and we're called to act in different ways and act like we're citizens of that kingdom. But through it all, there's another thread this Moses story points to, and that's the thread of being a manager for God. A manager, a steward. Now, let's, let's just spend a few minutes summarizing what this role means. What it means is essentially this, that with everything I am and everything I have and everything that happens, I am a manager of everything I am and have for the purposes and glory of God. If I've been purchased by God, I'm His. Everything I have belongs to Him, right? Everything. Let's just take that one step deeper. That means that we tend to think that we're owners, and we're not. We're not owners. But on the other hand, neither are we simple slaves. The position of a manager has incredible responsibility. It has incredible honor. And with that, there's a lot of accountability. The weight's on our shoulders. A manager of everything I have and have, not just of some of the things. Can't squirrel some stuff away in a hidden account somewhere from God. It, Everything is his. But neither am I a manager of what I don't have. We always know how everybody else should manage what they have, but that's not our job. Yet that's between them and God. We are a manager of what we are and have, not if we don't. Now we can summarize that up by thinking of the, the three T's. We're going to do that in a bit. But, um, but for the reason we're a manager is for, not for my purposes. We can't tell God, this is what I want to do with it. It's for His purposes, for the purposes and glory of God. Not for my purposes, but neither do we have to worry about the unrealistic expectations of other people. It's just me and God. 
Ultimately, I'm accountable only to God. But I am and I will be accountable to him because it's all his, right? I'm his manager. So back to this, what's the gift in it question that, that I processed a number of years ago. I only told you the first half of the question or the first question. It was actually two little questions. It was actually the second part of the question that was very transformational for me. What is the gift in it? And what is the opportunity that I have to leverage this? Whatever you're putting me in, God, what is the opportunity I have to leverage this for you? The opportunity to see your protection, to see your guidance, to see you, and the opportunity to use this to rub shoulders with people and encourage them along their journey. It was asking that question that helped me get my eyes off what was happening or what was not happening to me and onto God and the opportunities God might be giving me in every single day to manage everything, every thought, every choice, every situation, everything in my hands for his purpose. Now there's, as we alluded a little bit earlier, there's, there's sort of three basic management portfolio categories. Uh, our time, our talents, and our treasure. Our treasures are the things that we've accumulated with our time and our talents, right? By God's grace, we, we always want to give some deference to them. But it's just that not we've accumulated them for, our, for ourselves by His grace. If we belong to God, these all belong to God. Together, with Him, for tomorrow. And as one of Jesus' parables indicates, I'm responsible to manage everything I have to maximize it for His purposes. So, Let's talk about how all this relates to our right now, together, for tomorrow thing. And as you process what we talked about today, remember, this whole money piece is only going to take about 10 minutes. All the rest of the stuff is talking about bigger picture stuff. This fall, you can take out these uh, little brochures that are in your, your uh, Project 18 brochures in your worship folder. Take those out. And if you, uh, if you don't have one with you, there's more of these at the uh, Project 18 booth in the back. And we'll make them available to you, uh, get as many as you need. Uh, this fall, as most of you know, we're going to be shaking things up a little bit in the way we do our Sunday morning gatherings. Uh, same mission, same message, just a little bit different delivery mechanism so that we feel we can be a little more effective. We've had to come to terms with two challenges and then one which is just a reality. We've got to think through uh, well. The challenge number one is that our children's ministry is growing. We're, we're fulfilling our mission. And... And we're in the second service. In this service time, um, we're getting quite full. But, but we have a lot of room in the first service. And, and we need to find a way to make that first service more uh, accessible and young family friendly. Challenge number two. We want to do everything we can. We want to use all, every means possible to help create a sense of community and connection among our younger families. It is, it's a whole different world in terms of raising kids today and, and connecting connecting in community with each other when we're all going every direction all the time. And we want to, we want to find a way to create a sense of community together uh, among our younger families. And then the reality, we, the reality we've, we've, we have to come to terms with is we all have different tastes and a different heart connection with a different kind of music. And so putting all of those things together, uh, here's what we're aiming at and working hard to implement this September. During our, our first service time at, at 9.15, or perhaps we need to change the time by 15 minutes or so, um, we're going to have our, our, a contemporary service in the gym and a more traditions or, or roots-oriented service in this auditorium. 
sermon will be broadcast from this auditorium into, into the gym. And the second service, this service time, we're going to have that same contemporary service in the gym, to start with anyway, and, and our Mandarin ministries will be meeting in this auditorium. So we've, we're using our space as effectively as we possibly can. Why are we doing this? Well, let, remind you, let me remind you of the vision. Our vision is to create an environment in which all generations can worship God freely and enthusiastically from their hearts so that we can unite together in the vision of resourcing the next generation to help their generation discover life in Jesus. That's what I want you to see and give yourself to. Now, in order to make that happen, we've got to address the cloak factor. Bring the cloak. The physical provisions to facilitate that mission. And we're spending some money to make what is currently the gym into a more effective multi-purpose space without losing that gym functionality. And we have to address things like acoustics, like audiovisual technology, like ambience, like heating to make it a more comfortable environment. Big time storage to store, even address what we've got a problem with now with chairs in the hall and our fireside room lined, fireside room lined the, the, hall, the walls lined with stuff. And what we're inviting us to do, each one of us, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, as each person does his work, as each part does its work, we're inviting us to achieve the goal of raising an extra $565,000 before the end of 2018. And as you look through that brochure, you can see what we're going to do. We're going to ask you to make a pledge. Anonymous, there's going to be no phone calls to you or visits, no accountability other than between you and God and your immediate circle, family. A promise to give sometime before December 30th, some extra to help us reach this goal. And here's the thing that touches my heart most about this, is your staff and board have already got together and have committed themselves to 123,500 of that. We're already 22% there. Now, don't tell anybody on our board that I said this, but I can tell you very sincerely and very, very sincerely and very seriously that I don't really care about the money. What I care about, what I care very deeply about, is that each one of us, myself included, uses this as an opportunity to get one step deeper into Jesus. You see, projects like this, for me, are not about us getting money. It's all about Jesus getting my heart. All of my heart. And if you don't want to be part of that, we don't want to ask you for money. Because as we know, Jesus put money and heart together. He was very clear that the priorities we really have are revealed by what we do with our money and how we think about our money. Our money decisions show and and they can help us develop the priorities of our hearts. In in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talked about that. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And to understand, he's talking about money. This word treasure, he's talking about money stuff. 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, can I ask you right now to just say to your own heart, okay, whatever else this opportunity is, I, I am willing to use this opportunity to declare, to declare to Jesus and to my own heart that I am all in with him and for him. And I want to be together as a team for him. I want to remind my heart of this and I want to declare tangibly to God that this is the case and I want to use this as an opportunity to develop my own heart. And just like when you develop the muscles in your body, it might hurt just a little bit, but like when your muscles hurt after a strong workout, you wake up the next morning, you groan and you say to yourself, no, this is a good kind of hurt. It's a development kind of hurt. Whenever you have something bad happen, a roof leak, or whenever you have a dream that you give to yourself to you, like buying a new house or something, this is what we do. We, we hurt in some areas for a period of time so we can achieve this big dream. This is one of those times. So, three development questions. Back to this piece that we didn't cover. It could happen. It could happen. If there's, you know, some people have the gift of giving. They do, and some of, some of us here have this gift of giving. What would happen if we had one gift of, say, $50,000? Maybe two gifts of $25,000. Those are the gift of giving gifts, okay? Uh, maybe five gifts of $10,000. Some of us have some of that squirreled away in a place that we just weren't quite sure what we're going to do with it. Maybe we had some dreams for it, but we say, you know what? Those dreams can wait. But if we had 10 gifts of $5,000, 100 gifts of 1000 250 gifts of 500, it's done, done. We can do that. Here's what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to ask those three development questions that are in your brochures. Number one, what can I afford? That's the baseline. That's the what's in your hand surface thing. And then ask yourself, okay, that's, that's maybe where I could start, but in order for this to be a development thing for me, there's two other questions. Number one, what can I sacrifice? Are there some dreams that I've sort of been squirreling stuff away for and I say, you know what? Maybe God wants me to put off those dreams one more year so that I can show, no, this is, this is yours. Um, because it's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. And maybe... Some of you have thought of a number and you think of this question and say, you know what, maybe I need to sacrifice this because that's what's in my hand that I need to give to God. And then the big one, what can I trust God for? What we'd like you to do is pray through that as a couple, as a family, as maybe a, a group of friends uh, talking to each other and, and then um, just take that pledge form in there, fill it out. Uh, we, 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 of course, like to keep a record of it to figure out where we are. We'd like to know what, we, what we're going to get. So we'd like to anonymously put it in uh, the pledge box in the back by Project 18 uh, or next week put it in the offering plate, uh, however you want to do that. Um, and, and then keep that little section for yourself. Maybe tuck it in your wallet or put it on your desk or on your fridge. And uh, we're going to mention it from time to time in the next month or so uh, just to to keep it before us, and, and we'll have a kiosk in the foyer that's uh, there today already for any questions about Project 18, and let's just watch something great happen for tomorrow as we do it together. So actually, this giving project is just one of four opportunities that are 
that are before us right now. We, we can give this Project 18 gift. We also want to, want to use this, and part of the development thing for our hearts is using this to say, you know what? To show that I believe in this mission, I, I, need, to, I need to be a little more disciplined than I have been in the past or maybe up my pledge, my commitment uh, to my regular giving to the, to the, to the mission and ministry of, of this church. Evaluate that as well. And then, and then there are some serving opportunities. To, in order for us to pull this off, we're going to have opportunity for a whole group, another group of us to get involved in technology, maybe just operating a camera or, or whatever. Um, and uh, there's some serving oper- and, and hospitality, uh, those two areas. We're going to need a few more people in, easy areas to get involved. Um, so consider that. There's going to be opportunity for you to sign up in the foyer there. And then even before that, this summer, as we move into our summer schedule, we like to take summer and give our regular uh, people who are serving, particularly in children's ministries and hospitalities, a break. And to do that, it is a few people to step up and say, you know what, I can claim one or two Sundays this summer. Serve one. In your bulletin is this blue form. Uh, it'll be there again next week. Uh, turn it into the information kiosk on your way out. And, you know, last year we produced through that, through that uh, serve one uh, form everybody we needed for our summer ministries. It's, it's an easy thing to do. You, can, you get to know some people that you don't know. You get to test an area out and say, you know what, I could do this for it more. It's, it's a, it's a low-time low commitment uh, to invest in that. Would you, would you just take those things to, um, to consider how you can just take this step of declaring, yes, I am together for tomorrow. Okay, wrap it up. Worship team, come forward. Uh, let me come back out of Project 18 and back what we're really talking about and, and think through that question, what can I trust God for? What can I trust who for? God. God. Who is this God I am putting my trust in? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God who Moses met, and the God who was declared in Jesus to be the one who is for us and can't be against us. As Paul says, as he comes to a transition point in the book of Ephesians, now to him, to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and declare our belief in this unstoppable God.